We spend far too much time worried about what makes us different than the next person or better than the next person and not enough time thinking about why we should respect the next person. We all have a story, an overarching theme that runs through our lives and makes us who we are. The problem is, we think that since each of our stories is different, there's not a lot of perceived value or shared struggle. But we have far more in common than we can imagine, and what motivates one person can certainly help us as well. The Third Lab Podcast is about understanding, respecting, and appreciating the struggle that it takes to overcome immeasurable odds in order to reach your destiny. Join me as I interview and bond with some of the most inspiring and incredible people, diving into their why to get a full understanding of their being. Without each other, we have nothing. So let's go on this adventure together and take on the future with open minds and open hearts. Welcome to the Third Lap Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Third Lap Podcast. Super excited as always. Uh, I'm your host, Mal Davis. I'm trying to do a better job of reminding people who I am because I just want to dive right into the guests. Um, Third Lap, I am Mal. I'm here today with Archie Leacock and super happy to be able to make this connection. Um, Kevin was able to connect us. So, Kev, again, thanks to you, man. I really appreciate you, brother. And so talking to Archie Leacock today, um, who is the founder and executive director of iDay, a systems activist and also a human being, man. I've had quite a few human beings on the show, so I'm excited about that. Um, and so, Archie, how you doing today? I'm doing great, and I'm happy to follow the trail of humans. Yeah, man, I, I think everyone so far <laughs> has been a human being. <laughs> I'm, I'm like 99% sure everybody on the there show has been go. a human. There now, listen, go. if I get some non-humans and I can figure it out, I'm, the, the third lab is open to them. But until then, we're going to stick with the humans. And so, Archie, um, how we know each other. So I interview your nephew, Kevin, who is just a really incredible person. Um, and through the process of him telling his story, he spoke about iDay and like how it was super influential in his career and just really his early life going to college, working for you. And so I was like, at the end of it, I was like, hey, man, if you you know, if your uncle's open, I would love to talk to him. Um, and then from there, started really looking into iDay and the work that you're doing, following you all on Instagram, checking out your website, which I love. And just the level of like activism and activity that's happening with a population that um, is really at risk here in Philadelphia uh, and really any urban city, really anywhere in the country, right? But certainly here in Philly, um, I, I really love the work that you're doing. And so um, this is the uh, Rep Your Hood. So that's how we know each other, um, but this is the Rep Your Hood section. So uh, what hood you repping, man? Where you, where you from, Archie? I'm originally from Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean, and that's a long time ago, <laughs> 66, and came here when I was just turning 16, actually. Yes, okay. a long time ago. You said you're 66, but I thought you was like 45, brother. You, you <laughs> must be young over there. <laughs> you must be blind. <laughs> <laughs> Not the last time I checked. Uh, last time I checked, I, was, I wasn't. But um, yeah, okay. so um, any other, so from Trinidad, Tobago, shouts out to the Caribbean. Um, any other places that you've lived that have been influential on in your life and your career? Well, I've lived in several places. I've been very fortunate um, to, when I came to the States in 1972, um, I went to the School for the Blind here in Philadelphia, and that was quite an experience. 
being in a school with 300 blind folks. In Trinidad, I went blind at 14 because uh, of an accident, a foot, uh, um, cricket accident. Cricket is not a sport we play much in America, but it's like a baseball and the ball was, is really hard and hit me in the eye, but we didn't think very much of it. So I went blind and living in a residential school at the time, it was, it, you know, the house parents didn't think it was that big of a deal. So by the time we realized my eye couldn't open and I was only seeing purple, it was time to go down to Port of Spain, which is the main place, the main, uh, the capital. And from there, you know, it got worse and worse. And eventually I lost my sight within three months. And then my mother, who was already in the States, she thought she should bring me here to see what the doctors can do. So I came here in 1972, but I've been in Philadelphia most of the time because of my mother. Um, and then I went to Indiana University in the Midwest and I was out there for two and a half years. Then I had a scholarship. I went to Germany for about a year and a couple of weeks. Then I came back here to Philadelphia to do work and really, and then I went to Canada for a little bit, a couple of months, um, went to school, Toronto University, and then I came back here. So, I, so I've been around, I've been around and I've seen enough to see the world and what it is I'm interested in. Yeah, definitely. You've definitely been quite a few places. I'm sorry to hear about the accident. Um, I'm, I am actually somewhat familiar with cricket, living out in Queens, almost in any park you go oh, to, yeah. they're playing cricket in Queens, man. Everybody's exactly. playing cricket in Queens. <laughs> well, yeah, you're, you're, that's New York, Queens, and Brooklyn. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, so, yeah, I was just in Brooklyn a couple of like uh, two months ago and they had a whole cricket match um, in, in the park. And I was sitting there watching it. I don't understand the rules or how it works, but it looks dope. <laughs> I mean, I played baseball for a long time, so I can see some of the similarities there. But, yeah, that ball definitely looks very hard. Um, and so you, you already sort of like started to transition us into kind of like your story. Um, and so this is my opportunity to kind of hand this over to you. Um, so that we can learn more about you as a person and also you about the more about you and the work that you've been doing. And so, uh, Archie, it's really up to you wherever you want to start us. Um, if you want to start us, you know, back in Trinidad and Tobago, uh, here in the States and college, you know, where do you think that like your sort of activism and your love for the work that you do really began? Actually, I, I think it, it takes me back to Trinidad, really, because when I think these days, you know, I'm 66. What do you, what really is tripping you? What, what, what really got you moving on this stuff? Why didn't you finish your PhD and do the work that they were training you to do, to write books and to write articles? I taught at Temple for about eight years. Um, and then I worked in student, um, the student center where we did a lot of advising of young, you know, all the undergraduate students. So it, 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 it was really interesting. And what I've really, I think, and I might change my mind tomorrow, um, because I've changed my mind over the years, is really to think that I'm here to help empower people and to help empower a very challenged group of young people in a city, minorities, and I can, come, I can identify with that. I might not be one of them right now, but I really feel that I embody their struggles. I went blind at 14 um, and I came from a very supportive uh, family system. I'm sometimes amazed that the young people can behave the way they behave here. In Trinidad, it would be, and of course, I hear a lot of American uh, Trinidadians are beginning to behave like Americans. So 
This is back in the 50s and 60s when I was a kid. Um, but you couldn't back talk to your parents and you couldn't, not that anyone would hit you or hurt you, but it's just the respect was just built into the system. The care, the level of care was built into the system that families knitted together, families stayed together. And when I went blind, I really found my mother to be extraordinary. I mean, back then I thought it was a curse. Like how would the, how would the Lord ever want to make you blind? What kind of God is that? You know, I, I was for a while, for two years, it was really, really difficult to be honest with you. Went through a lot, all my friends disappeared at 14. What do you expect your friends to do? They don't know how to handle a disabled person. So they all took off. So it was just me and my mother. And she really committed her life to helping me and caring for me and teach, really literally reteaching me everything that I spent in the first five years of my life. How to pee, how to wash dishes, how to sweep the floor, how to clean the sink. And she would take my hand and show me, you know, and listen to me. But constantly through it all, she would always tell me, you know, you can do anything you want. Don't let the world put you down. You can do anything you want. Don't. And it would come in different versions, but she'd always say, you can do it. Go do it. Find a way to do it. And therefore, that was, you see, now you're making me want to to tear because she's now dead 10 years. And I don't talk to her, I don't talk about her like this, because it's way too painful for me. So it's so good to have to leave, it's like, goodness. Anyway, yeah. I'm getting it back together. So when she came to the States and she found out that I was blind, she said, well, why don't I bring you to the States and let's take you to the American Hospital Americas, you know, is, is it? If you're gonna get any care, you're going to get in America. If it's not doable, it's not going to happen. So I came here in 1972, um, and we went around to the various hospitals, Rev's Eye and GI Institute, and everybody looked at my eyes and was just waiting, okay, let's do it and get it back together. And what came of it was, you better get used to being blind. This is too far gone. There's nothing we can do. So come see us every three months and be good, be on your way. And I'm like, what? <laughs> this is supposed to be, this is supposed to be America, heaven. You know, anything can happen. And they're telling me what I heard in Trinidad, that doesn't make any sense. My mother says, you're gonna do it. You can do anything you want still, sighted or blind. And I said, okay, let's do it. And from then on, you know, she enrolled me into Overbrook School for the Blind, uh, which is in West Philadelphia here off of City Line Avenue. And it was just amazing to go to a school with 300 blind people and to see them all run around crazy, jumping up and down steps and running into each other, and succeeding and achieving. And it was just, I mean, I, I like, okay, whatever they're doing, I'm going to do. So I started wrestling and running track and picking up all kinds of musical instruments and learning to play them. And before you know it, I was getting up at five o'clock in the morning you know, I'm doing what they were doing. And it was like tremendous. But one thing I noticed in the early days was, and it was subtle, how the teachers spoke to the young people. And it baffled me why they would talk down and be so deliberate and so careful when they're talking to a certain group of kids and the other kids, they just, oh, come on, let's go down by another one, another 10. You know what I mean? You can do it. And it was amazing after a while I started recognizing race 
as an ingredient. In the beginning, it was, I just come to America. You know what I mean? I didn't think of black, white or anything, but I started noticing that the teachers would talk to the black students differently. And it's like, why is that? Of course, they wouldn't talk to me that way because they recognized I was a foreigner. I had a heavy accent. I still have a slight accent, but back then it was really thick and they knew my situation. And I think, I would like to think they treated me differently. But I noticed that difference and I said, this is our call for. And then the more I studied, the more I read, I finished uh, Overbrook High School in 1975. Then I went to two summer camps, which was great upstate New York and here in, here in Pennsylvania, I think it was on Indiana University, the Fred Waring uh, music, music, summer music program. And I also noticed the same thing there too. The, you know, the music was different. So it's the differences really started ricocheting with me and resonating with me. And then I went to Temple University and I even saw it even more in the classes. Other professors would talk to the black students versus, and I said, this is unnecessary. This is ridiculous. So I went on, finished up the Temple, went to Indiana and I went to Germany, got a scholarship, went to Germany and studied at the Stuttgart University and at uh, Jim, um, Goethe Institute, which is a language school. And it was great. I mean, these people would come out and stand on the steps just to see me walk down the street. And I didn't know if they were seeing me walk down the street because I was blind or I was black. But it so happened that my friend that I took to the Germans won't let me come by myself. So they gave us two scholarships, one for me and a friend, George. And George was, is white and he went with me and he was able to say, no, they, they never saw a black person before. The way I'm seeing them, they're like amazed and say, well, George, you gotta teach me. And I would literally go around the town, blow boiling around the town, Stuttgart by myself. And everybody was like amazed that I could walk around and not be injured and know how to cross the street. And George was just amazing. He was my reader in a temple and I selected him to, to go with me. It was a great, great, great opportunity. And then I came back to the States and went to Indiana University. I got my master's degree in music. Um, it's called ethnomusicology. And I was there for two and a half years and that was another great experience. I lived out in the woods in a cabin and walked back to campus every day. And everybody was amazed that I would live out there. And to me, it was like nothing. This is what you, know. this is what you do. My mother said, I can do whatever. So I'm doing whatever, you know what I mean? And the mother, she would come out wherever I went, she would always fly out and spend a week with me and pray and ask God to really bless me and do the right things. And it was just awesome. Mother was very, very special. What up everybody? Thank you as always for listening to the podcast. And as this thing has evolved, I've been able to make merch. So for all the folks that have already bought merchandise, thank you so much. For people that haven't yet to purchase any, you can go to the Third Lap Podcast. That's T-H-E, the number three, R-D-P-O-D-C-A-S-T.com. Go to that merch tab. It'll take you right to the T Public store. There's Third Lap merch right now with the logo on it, but gearing up for some future drops, all types of different things. And so if you have ideas or concepts or art work that maybe you want to see as merch and want to collaborate hit me up you know how to find me third lap on instagram facebook twitter all of the socials all of the places i love y'all thank you for always supporting peace
That is an incredible story. And I love what you said about your mom telling you, listen, whether you have sight, whether you blind, like you can do it. And, you know, you took that on. I know you said the first two years were really tough, like losing your friends um, yes. and really having to like make that adjustment. But then it seemed like you really quickly found a community, especially here in the United States, um, going to the school for the blind at Overbrook, being able yes. to connect with George in college. Um, going with George to Germany, which was an incredible opportunity. Um, and so, but something that you mentioned that you noticed, even though you couldn't see it specifically, you could yeah. feel it, which is incredible, like how how much the racism resonated with you. Can you talk about that, you know, sort of that difference? Like, did you feel that same sort of racism when you went to Germany versus Canada versus the United States? Um, because that's something that I think a lot of people don't really comprehend especially talking about like the the mid to late 70s um just how impactful that was on young black and brown people trying to just get an education and being literally treated differently so can you just talk a little bit about like you in the states versus you in canada versus you in germany like how did the racism feel different or did it feel different at all i did feel different because when i went to germany i was a black american and, you know, they didn't hear my accent because I couldn't speak German as well as they did. So what I got introduced as was I'm from America. I'm from Philadelphia. So they saw me as Black. Um, and I saw the same kind of difference. The teachers treated me a little differently. But because I was disabled, I think they also were willing to reach out and help. So I, I got the same kind of talk down to and being more deliberate in talking and trying to explain and asking you over and over, do you understand? Which is really so absurd, you know. Um, but I did experience that while I was there and even in Canada, I think I realized the same situation. I think the racism is so embedded in American culture that it is so difficult to eradicate it. Um, and that has been my struggle as a blind person to see that I had difficulties and growing up and expanding and learning to take advantage of opportunities and move forward. And I see it with my own African-American brothers and sisters. The system just don't expect you to succeed. In fact, what's going on today with all this crazy stuff with guns and violence, the reason I think the government is not taking it seriously, still not taking it seriously, because they just expect, well, that's Black people. You know, I remember when I was in graduate school, I went back and got a second master's degree at Temple in public administration. And I remember back then reading, you know, uh, one of the articles that President Nixon at the time basically said, as long as they keep shooting themselves in the neighborhood, that's cool with me. But as soon as they come out, I'll send the troops in. I'm like, what? <laughs> and that's essentially is what we see happening when we look at the data today we're really seeing it in 14 of the city zip codes and that's where the majority of african americans and latinos live in those 14 zip codes no one dares go to city line avenue no one dares goes up to chestnut hill you know because you do those kinds of things you know what's going to happen you're going to be dead and you're going you're going to be criminalized so it's interesting how we can get away with, allow this kind of stuff to get away with in the, in the city because it's expected that that's what they're gonna do. That's their level, that's their mentality. It's nothing that we think of as greater opportunities for them and greater skills. And that's where I come in. 
You know, that's when I was teaching as part of my doctoral program uh, at Temple, I taught classes. And I always was in the beginning, it was fascinating to hear that Temple was in North Philadelphia, which is Latin and African-American community. But to also walk into the buildings, there are Blacks walking up and on the street and in Temple Bell Tower, but they're not going into the buildings. And it was interesting because my readers would tell me, you know, and then of course, when I got into the building, you talk, you're only talking to European Americans, but more specifically in my classroom that I taught, you know, for eight years, essentially there were only like one or two African Americans, three or four uh, Latinos, five or six Asians, and the rest were European Americans. I'm like, yo, this is North Philadelphia. The school should be crowded with minorities, but they didn't even walk into the building. They just walk up another street because they're going to 12th Street or going to 16th Street. They didn't come into the building. And to me, that was so fascinating that even there, because they were undereducated, didn't have the skills to take the exams and, and feel confident to come into the buildings, that only European Americans. And when we look at what's going on at the university today, it's the same old nonsense. They're beefing up security because they want to make sure white kids continue to come to the university. It's so interesting to me. So that's how I started idea, by the way. While I was teaching at Temple, I basically felt I want to help. I want to help those who are disadvantaged, how I was. How do you reach out and help those people? And on Saturdays when I didn't, when I wasn't working on my stuff, I volunteered and would walk up and on the street and ask young people, do you need help with your math? Do you need help with the English? How are you doing? And Steve and I, who was my friend who started IED, he's no longer around, he's doing something else. Uh, he basically would walk up and down and talk to the young people and they would tell us, yeah, yeah, I'll come in, I'll come. And, you know, we would say, come on Saturday. And Saturday they would show up and Steve and I would, you know, work with them on these different areas to get back, get into college, go back to school. Many of them are dropped out. And then we started hearing other kinds of problems. I'm like, this is just no tutoring. This is, <laughs> this is a bunch of other things that's happening here. So the more we listened, the more Steve and I said, you know what, we should start, we should start an institute. And what are we going to call it? To what, for us, it was really easy. Well, it's back kids, African-American. What's most important? We're the university institute. You know, we, that reflects education. So it, the name of the agency, Institute for the Development of African-American Youth, was really clear to us. It reflected what we were doing, working and developing African-Americans in an educational environment. So for us, we didn't have to fight with it. We came up with it like in five minutes. And then say, okay, that's it. We go call it. But then no one, none of the young people would call it, they would always say, uh, institute. All right, well, let's figure it out. So we came up with IDEA about a year later. And IDEA is the acronym for, for the Institute. And here we are today, 30 years later. And that's just incredible. And at this point, I definitely want to dive into IDEA, um, the Institute for the Development of African-American Youth Incorporated. And yeah, 30 years, man, it's it, that's such a blessing. Um, and you all do so much great work here in the city. Um, and again, I really want to thank Kevin for introducing me to IDEA and to you, because these are things that really 
are close to my heart and like things that I care about as well. And I have no idea how I didn't come across this before, um, but I'm glad that I have now because, you know, again, I get a chance to not only connect with you to talk about it, but also, again, hopefully be able to volunteer and really spend time getting to know the kids myself. And so you mentioned that, you know, it started off with you realizing that Temple, which is the guys, the honest truth, that Temple just has a lot of work to do to better engage with the black and brown community that literally surrounds the school in a much more pur purposeful fashion right like when you look yes. at temple predominantly white kids in a predominantly black and black and brown neighborhood and so you start an i day you're approaching the kids come through on saturdays in those early phases or early stages you know what were some of the like difficulties maybe around like attendance or engagement or even just getting a word out about it you know what were some of the things that you had to overcome to get here 30 years later um to be very honest with you, the system creates the problem for these young people and they feed into it because they don't have a choice. Lots of our young people don't go to school because it's not they don't want to go to school, it's a school. <laughs> the school doesn't teach what they want, I hate to sound it, but we, used, we had a truancy contract and we would go and figure out why they didn't go to school and how we can help. As always, the content wasn't quite appropriate for all young people and even when we had them come to Temple to do the work. They came. We never had an issue with them coming because they knew we were focused on them. We, they knew we were gonna answer their questions and help tutor them with what they needed. And we had young people in that program. You, you wouldn't believe it, basic. They could not read. We had 15, 16, 17 year olds couldn't read. I'm like, yo, that's what blind person. Someone has to read to me, but here they are. They were, but it wouldn't it manifest itself right away, you know? is through all the different activities you would notice uh, that they were having difficulties or didn't want to read and refused to read. When you finally coax them into reading, you would find out that they really can't read. And so the misbehavior and the distraction are just distractions to what is really afoot. So we really, Steve and I really worked with them and helped them. And we sat down literally and would take them. And I would say, yeah, read it to me. I'm blind, just, just doesn't matter. And they would read and I'll be able to help them go back and fix the words and pronounce it the, the right way and understand and ask them, well, what do you think? I mean, it was that basic. In fact, we still do that work where the case managers go out to the school or go to the homes and work with young people and get them familiar with what they need to do and keep boosting their egos, their, their supports, letting them know this is possible. The same way my mother said, it's possible. You can do whatever you want to do. Yeah, and that's so important, right? It's like building up that. Well, first, what you mentioned, which is true, like as a teacher working in schools, you know, I hate when people talk only about a kid's behavior, but don't talk about what the root cause or what the root issue is, right? Exactly. Is it something yeah. at home? You know, is it something, to your point, I've had students that were almost in high school that had elementary school reading levels. And so if you can't read and you've been embarrassed numerous times in that regard, you're going to do yeah. everything to deflect away from having to read, right? You would much rather get in trouble than people find out that you can't read, can't write, aren't, you know, able to do the like baseline things for that grade level. And so you mentioned the importance of like being able to build up just the esteem of the kids, much like your mom did for you. Um, how, so there are a lot of ways to do that though, right? And so you mentioned like you have folks going to the schools, going to the homes. What are some of like the foundational conversations 
that your the the folks that work for you and even yourself have with families have with students to just really give get them to try right because like that's the big piece is like you got to give an effort you got to put the work in you got to at least start trying and believe that even if you make a mistake mistakes are okay they're learning opportunities yes. you know but like how do you yes. get folks to instill what are some of the things that you teach students and teach the young men and young women that come to i day um about just giving that effort and being willing to try well unfortunately i am not in every classroom with the young people as in the olden days in the olden days it was saturday and that's it you know so and i was there all day um because we have now expanded we run programs frankly six days a week sunday's the only day we don't do anything in the building so I'm, so it's hard for me to be in every room because I got to write court reports. You know, I got to go to schools. I have to talk to principals, talk to funders, you know, all kinds of things going on. Um, so I don't often work with them. But what I have tried to do, and I think to some degree we have been successful, is to figure out staff. I do two classes with the staff and teach them how to engage young people, how to be supportive, how to be caring, how to identify challenges. While you're identifying challenges, you are supporting them rather than bringing them down. Because this is our system. We like to put people down. You know, the system just believes if you put people down, then you are better. Right, yeah. <laughs> rather than seeing the value that if you uplift people, all of us together can do a better job. But sometimes I think philosophically, this is a problem with our country. America could be even better if we can pull those African-Americans, all of the African-Americans, Latinos, Asians together and bring us up together with white folk. But white folks feel if you bring everybody up to their level, they're going to become important. They're going to become unimportant. So they really want to put you down and make you feel second class. You know what I mean? As well as historically slavery and taking care of people, you know, going to their homes and babysitting their kids and being servants cleaning their homes, you know, just second class thing because they believe if we become equal, we're going to lose our position. And that's why they don't like to see us be, you know, be uh, like Colin Powell, his parents who are from, from Jamaica or people in city council or state governments or federal government because white folks are afraid of it. And I, I can tell you, I see it all the time. You know what I mean? The more educated you are, the more white folks have problems with you. <laughs> it is really interesting, but we have to keep supporting our young people and supporting them as they grow because they're fighting a multitask challenge, not only for themselves, but also to their homes and also to for their neighborhoods. So if some of these neighborhoods we go in, man, I'm telling you, some of these homes, no furniture, no nothing. Is, you know, Steve, my assistant, and I, my nephew, who works with me also, we have to, sometimes we literally go to Walmart, buy two folding tables and four chairs and bring it back and say, you owe us nothing. We love you. Take this. You know, it is crazy when with, with our young people, you know, so much of them that are disadvantaged. So there's a lot of work to be done and still to be done. But I think one of the things that I want to make clear um, this sort of dichotomy that in building idea, I'm also building a system of thinkers and doers. So we, what, what I basically say to folks um, is you come to idea bleeding, what do you do at a hospital? We stop the bleeding. So we stop the bleeding. When you come to idea, we teach you, we 
get your education up, we get your smarts up, your supports up, we encourage you. And the next step is we want now to build a community and we want you to go back into the community and make changes because it's changes in our democratic society that's gonna ultimately make the fundamental changes that we need in this country. That's why I was so supportive of Black Lives Matter. Uh, although it was a little more radical than I, than I thought, but I think fundamentally the concept was great. And we have young people who do this. You know, after 30 years, I can share with you, there are a bunch of, of our young people. I know Will Maurice that you know, um, ran for city council one time, and that would be sort of the ideal thing of making changes or it took, you know, the idea of making change and growing. And now he's in the Navy. He's a, a, one of the main um, officers um, in, in the Navy in Washington, DC. Um, we have several other young people who have started their own businesses and really making change. I was just talking to Talia the other day and she was talking about the changes that she's making, helping people understand you can open up your own business on credit. You don't even have to put a dollar down. She rolled out a brand new 2021 vehicle of the lot and then put down a penny. All it was because of her credit. And when we look at some of these, you know, unfortunately rich European Americans, Donald Trump and the whole bunch, they're million, billion years because of doing the same thing. They're not spending their own money, but we think we got to spend our own money, you know? So it's an education in the system and how to do it. And Talia was amazing that she has her own, you know, hair salon, she has three hair salons, she has this, she has that, she's doing, and it's like, wow, I'm ready to come back to ID and give. Can I run an entrepreneurial program, you know, series of workshops on Saturday? Absolutely. When you want to start yesterday, Absolutely. It's amazing when you stimulate these guys and get them supportive and, and what they can do, help them with the energies and the education, what they can turn out to do. And we hope ultimately in time, we will see a change in our, in our, in our city. Yeah. And what you mentioned about, you said her name was Talia. Talia, yes. Yeah. That is really the testament to the work that you're doing is that people come back and want to serve and support, right? Yeah. And like she realized the importance of credit. She's been able to accomplish these really great things, attest so much of that to her time and experience with Ida. And now wants to come back and teach other young people to do the yes. same thing. Yes. And that's a beautiful thing because that's community, right? Like that's our African roots. Like that's our ancestry is being able to lift each other up, you know? And what you said was like, and it's so on point is that, you know, we want to keep people down to feel better about ourselves, right? Like, but that's not the way, man. Like when we lift up each other, everyone becomes better, not only around us, but ourselves. And like, that's yeah. really how you do it, right? You invest in other people. And so in, in regards to investing in other people, I see you have one of the programs that you run, which is Young Fathers United. I would yes. love to hear about this because this is so important. And like, for me, this is it's close to home as somebody aspiring to be a father, but somebody that sees the negative information that's constantly being spewed and spread about Black fatherhood and about Black fathers. They're absentee, they don't care, they're not around. But I know so many really great Black fathers, um, whether they're with their partner or not, like they care about their kids, they give yes. all the time and energy to their children. But so many of them didn't have an example to look at. And so they had to sort of figure it out on their own. And so, you know, that's why I sort of want to talk about what the Young Fathers United is, because learning how to be a father is a real thing, right? Like, you know, yes. there are certain things that you have to learn. Um, and so I love the fact that you already 
have this program for young men, young fathers, ages 14 to 25. And so just would love to hear a little bit about like what that program is. And if anybody listening is looking to get involved, how would they do so? Yes. Well, certainly I want to give you a preamble statement uh, before I talk about young fathers. In, as ID continues to grow, I think our strength in the agency is really figuring out where are we most effective. And we thought that there were four or five main areas uh, where our young people needed support. Education, that's number one. So we have a college-bound program. We have just expanded that to tutorial. So you don't have to be ready to go to college, but of course, after you get tutoring for two or three years, you don't want to go to college because this is how you're going to really make an impact. So education is paramount. So we tell folks, yeah, go to your neighborhood school and come here on weekends, you can learn, come on Wednesday evenings, you can learn, and then you can still give, go back to the school and inspire other people. So other teachers, other young people to come and they bring their friends, believe it or not, they bring their friends to us. So that's one thing. The other thing, uh, in addition to education, uh, is the juvenile justice system. All these young people being arrested for important things, unfortunately, and some very unimportant things, unfortunately. Uh, we had a young man, 10 years old, got arrested. He went to buy a BB gun and a store. And as soon as he came out of the store, the police was right there and arrested him because he had a gun. In my opinion, they should have arrested the, you know, the, the manager of the store. Why are you going to arrest a 10-year-old and put him in handcuffs? Come on, now, where are you going to go? You know, so it takes... Right that kind of energy to go fight for these guys. And that's what we do. I'll go down to the, you know, to the precinct and want to see the captain. And he says, well, you're blind. We can't do nothing. What? You can't do nothing? Bro, I got you. I'm going to write all the letters all over the place. And I'm going to make a difference here for this young person. We take him on and we really go after it. So, you know, and even if we have to go to city council and complain, which is another story all by itself. So that is, so criminal justice is critical for us. Another part that's really critical is economic opportunities and training. You know, you, if you can stand on a corner and sell drugs and sell weed nine in the morning to nine at night, you're an entrepreneur. And I tell them this all the time, if you can be selling drugs and you understand the difficulties therein, you can also understand the difficulties and opportunities in being an entrepreneur. And many of them get jobs, come for training and give it up. But we need to do it many, many more and with many more opportunities and more facilities so we can reach many more folks. So, so economic opportunity is really great. And then of course, parenting. We see parenting as a real problem. As you indicated, the same thing that you saw is what we struggled with and figured the only way we're going to help is by building a program for young men. So they come in at 14 to 25, and we teach them how to be a father. That child is yours. That's your sperm. You're the one who did it. Now, I have to be honest with you. By far, 90% of the guys and young fathers, they don't go in to be a father. They're 14, 15, and I'm like surprised at my age at 14, 15, I knew to pull out. Why are you having sex and, you know, exploding in, in these girls? You know what I mean? So it's a real education to talk to these guys in a way and help them understand, yes, your ego is important. Yes, what you did is important, but you have to understand what's going to happen. And then we have the mothers of these girls who don't want these guys around because they see these guys as 
troublesome. All he wanted sex for my daughter. I don't want him around. Now I have to put her on welfare and on and on. So we go to their homes and we talk to these parents. Say he has a right, even if he's 15 or 16, to babysit. We are teaching him. He's going to be good. He's going to be good. You know, and it takes time for these mothers, to, older mothers to understand what we're trying to do. But then we have to give them support too. Because now we are talking on the behalf of the young man. We're talking now on behalf of the baby, the mother, the baby mother, and now the older mother, who is often the person in the household. Most of our men, unfortunately, are either on the streets doing other inappropriate things or in prison. So we spend a lot of time going to these guys' homes, talking to them, working with their parents so they understand what needs to happen. And it's a 13-week curriculum that we work with teaching the guys how to be men, how to uh, have safe sex and plan for what it is you need to do and understand what comes of your action is something that is more than what you expect. And, but if that's the case, let's deal with reality. I have to tell you though, interestingly enough, that um, after doing Young Fathers for years, over the years we have had adult fathers come, come to me and complain, man, this is unfortunate, you guys. Don't like us, older men. I'm 35 and I need help too. How you can only do la la la. So after a while, I said, you know what? I've heard enough of it. We're gonna expand young fathers. So this is the first year we have young fathers, two groups, one for 14 to 25, and then another group from 26 to 40. Let me tell you that 26 to 40 is overflowing. <laughs> it's overflowing, like what? They're supposed to know what to do. But they need support too. They need pampers. They need to talk to someone about how to raise a child and what to do. And well, I have a case myself. What do I do with my case? I just, just yesterday, I was talking to a, a, a father with the same challenge, just came out of jail after 11 years, got his son, his, the girl pregnant, but he came to us yesterday and he was leveling, telling us what's going on. You know, I need help too. Not only his son needs help, but he needed help and he and one of the instructors and I sat there with him for about an hour and we sort of talked to him, worked through the difficulties and gave him our numbers, call, your son is coming, you come too, we're happy if you come, because you're an adult. So the work is incredibly awesome, it's needed, and we as black people need to understand the fundamental challenge in this country. And we can't overcome it, we don't have to hate white people, we just have to love ourselves more and build. And this love is back again, back to my mother saying, you can do it. You can do it. I'm here to help you. And I'm saying the same thing to these young black men and daughters, you know, and females. Unfortunately, 80% of the, our population is men because that's where our problem is. But now we just got an interesting distinction and they're saying we need more females. So we have 20% of females we now have to expand that female part of it, recognizing mothers are now dealing with these teenage boys and they're struck, they're stuck with what to do. So we don't have to help them out, but we now have to have a program to support them. So don't fall under the hood. As of January 3rd, we are now gonna have a new track for females. And one of our really bright, smart um, case managers, she's gonna be the director of that program, Adrian Taylor. Hey everybody, so I have some really exciting news. 
the Third Lab podcast is actually expanding. And so I'm in the process of putting together a co-author book called The Third Lab, Transformational Stories of Life Experiences That Make Us Better. And this is a great opportunity for anyone that's looking to get published for the first time, or if you've been published before, this is a great opportunity to, well, not have to write a whole book yourself. And so if you're interested in learning more about the product, the program, the opportunity, feel free to reach out to me at maldavis21 at gmail.com or feel free to reach out to me through the socials for the third lap really excited about this program really excited about this opportunity and really excited for you all to come and join me so again if you have any questions want to learn more feel free to reach out to me at any time each one teach one we all learn together peace yeah i mean everything that you described is so heavily needed and important right and i was actually going to ask was there ever a time where like a father came about one of his sons that might have been in the program because I saw that it expanded from 26 to 40 and maybe had a father with a son talking about another child that's an infant. You already described it. Don't worry and edit it and I'll take his name out so you don't have to worry about that. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, talk about the expansion. So a couple of things that, that you said that I would love to hear just a little bit more about. So you mentioned having to advocate on behalf of the young men to go into the house of like the baby mom and speak to her mother about yes. like why he needs to be involved in the process. So it's a 13 week course. What happens after 13 weeks? Can they come back to IDEA? Are there, do you help to like pair them to other systems and supports? Like yes. what's sort of like the follow-up once they, once they graduate from the program? Well, after 13 weeks, we want you, the concept that we want you now to, you have gotten some basics Go out and try it. We have worked out where you can now go see the baby and you can babysit at least. You know, you don't have $40 or $50. You can, babysitting costs money nowadays. And if you can babysit, that's your child. You don't have to pay for it. They can come back after. They have to skip a cycle, another 13 weeks, and then they can come back. We want you to try out and think about what we have said. It can't be continuous. We think you can learn, get the information. We help you, support you, give you some case management help you get a job. We have these guys get social security cards, birth certificates, whatever they need during that time, we help them make legal service. We get pro bono lawyers to help them out. And then we want you to stop, graduate, stop, and then try those things. Call us if you need us. And then you can come back 13 weeks later. So we, we really offer continuous plan because we know you can't learn everything in 13 weeks. Yeah, that was going to be my piece. 13 weeks. <laughs> I know fathers that 13 years and they still learning, right? So 13 weeks yeah, is quick, yeah. but definitely understand. I, I love the piece of like, okay, we've taught you now go and try it. And we'll if try you still it. need yeah. help, come back. We'll be here for yeah, you yeah. in 13 weeks, right? But yeah, like definitely right. take the steps um, to try it yourself. And so everything we've talked about so far, right? With the, with the young father and, and support there, you talked about the criminal justice system and like how our young men and young women and non-binary children are interacting with the criminal justice system, which was perf purposefully set up to yes. absorb our kids, right? And to like turn us into modern day slaves within the prison industrial complex. But a big piece of that is mental health. And like, I advocate heavily, I have a whole separate podcast dedicated specifically to mental health. And so I see that you all also have like mental health supports. Um, specifically around like the intensive in-home supervision program. And so can you talk to me a little bit or talk to us, I should say, a little bit about like, how do you all support the young people that you work with from a mental health standpoint? 
And then ultimately, are there other areas that you're looking to grow with that in the future? Um, how do you think it's going so far? But yeah, like mental health being a huge piece of like how they overcome these situations. How do you all work with them to help them with that? Yeah, the functioning of the brain is important. And if the brain isn't balanced and you don't feel good about it, it's in your brain you start. You know, you might feel in your heart too, but it's in your brain. So we see the brain as critically important. I'm blind, but yet I can go to school and go here, there, and everywhere because of my brain and my mother stimulating that. And if I had probably been left to be depressed more than two years, um, probably my brain would not be where it is today to help others. I would still be absorbed with myself. Um, so we have case managers in all our programs and they actually go to their home, go to the schools, go to wherever they are, because we want to see it, we want to interpret it, and we want to help them out. As I say, we help them get all of the essentials they need. We have a job developer, help them get jobs, even if you are 16. So as you become 16, we help you get a part-time job, work for somebody, and you have a coach in that parent development. We now just combine with a partnership with another agency to do much the same thing, because they have young people that they want to, us to work with, and we are now building a partnership with them. Because we realize we can't do this work alone in the city. It's going to take 300 years to do it. But if you want it sooner, we have to reach out to other groups. So we have just started working with this other agency. And by the way, we are doing that with two other, with two other partnerships uh, that's starting on the 6th, on the 19th of January. So we, we are, we, we are on, on the go. We also have therapists on staff. We just started that for the first time. Uh, we have two trauma therapists and they come in and they, uh, they run group sessions about feelings and talking. One thing our teenagers don't like to do is talk. The thing that's, uh, we ain't pussies, we ain't doing that, you know? Uh, but we teach them, it's okay. Even talking to your next door neighbor to someone in your home, that's counseling, that's therapy. So once we start identifying that we're doing therapy already is just the new version of therapy is to see someone objective with some more skills than the person who might live in your house or live in your basement or down the street, they are willing to go along with it. And generally, if I tell the guys with this, especially with this COVID stuff, I got your back. I got it. Everybody got the, in the vaccination. I need you to get it. Guys actually say, Mr. Archie, if you get it and you think so, I'll get it. And they're getting it because of me, because they know I am there for these guys. They, these guys know they can call me at one o'clock in the morning and I'm going to pick up my phone or if they need help doing something, I think they're worthwhile. You know, like today sending, you know, uh, cash shopping one guy $200 because I know him. I've seen him try to work for four years. He's in a tight situation. He sends me the information so I can see he's really in debt. Here's $200. Whenever you get it, pay it back. Do I, can I afford it? Probably not, but I'm trying. You know what I mean? It's going to work out. Someday I'm going to win the lottery. <laughs> Hopefully, you know what I mean? Um, but we try to work with these guys. So we have drug and alcohol. We have uh, drug and alcohol therapists on staff now. For the first time, we hired this person. She runs groups. And then she on Friday, she comes in and she runs individual. But we want to teach our young people. You want a job? Yeah, this weed might make you whatever, but it's covering up a lot of interesting things in your life. You're feeling good today, but what are you going to do tomorrow? What did you do yesterday? So we want to help them understand. And if you're going to go for a job, 
the boss man is going to ask you for a P test, then what are you going to do? You know what I mean? So we we have uh, the the drug the drug and alcohol therapist work with them and do individuals as well as group. We just started this past week for the first time with a lawyer uh, teaching them juvenile law rights. So you think you're arrested wrongly? Let's talk about it and let's see what the law actually says. And let's see what you could say when you go back to court rather than having the public defender just tell you, plead guilty and get out of here and be thankful. No, we ain't doing that because I've seen too many of the young people plead guilty and do this kind of stuff just to get it over with. And the parents don't know any better. And the parents say, well, it's your fault. You did it. I ain't got nothing to do with it. Just plead guilty. And they're pleading guilty to things that they can, the European American parents would never let happen. So now we brought someone on board, uh, Darren Keyes, and he had his first group with, with them today in Don't Fall Now, this past Thursday. And amazingly, the guys are like, can you be my lawyer? They're, no, I can't be a lawyer, but I'm gonna teach you how to do this. I'll be willing to talk to you, your lawyer, even help you get a lawyer who has expertise in this. So now Darren is working and talking to these guys about legal matters. So we, we wherever they, we see the need and we see that there is someone who understands what we're trying to do, we bring them on board to work with us. And amazingly, in a lot of cases, it's working. Listen, I feel strongly about these young people. They can do this. They can change and revolutionize America. America, for whatever reason, wants to hold these guys back. They want to keep them permanently as slaves. I'm telling you, even the GPS these guys have on their leg, that shackles. I tell them that when they say, oh, I never thought of it. I didn't think this was shackle like slavery. It is because they, they are monitoring you 24 seven with, with this. And all of the kids come in with these shackles, the GPS monitoring devices on their leg and they feel, oh, well, this is what I have to do. I ain't got no choice. Yes, you do have choices around this stuff. You know what I mean? So I see a lot of this stuff, this mental stuff is to keep all young people down, keep them depressed, keep them thinking they're less and they can't accomplish. They don't have the opportunities. Everything is a favor. Even the public welfare system is a favor. The child tax credit is a favor. They give nothing. Everybody's doing something to help them out or not to help them out, to hold them back. And I think what we're trying to do is to help them do the total opposite. They can change, they have the ability to, we just have to be able to work with them in areas that they need. And we, I've seen it, I've seen it. As a blind person, I've seen it. And one last thing I'll say on this is a lot of the young people see my disability as a bonus, as a benefit to them. They say, Arch can do that and he's blind man and he's running this place, I can do it. When I went blind, I did not think being blind was a gift in any measure. As, as you heard me say, I thought, how could the Lord be so mean? He's supposed to be almighty and good. Why would he make me blind? But today I said, Lord, you know what? You kind of knew what you were doing back then because today I'm helping a whole lot of young people and other people, sad people, who are surprised that a blind man is running the show and doing it quite effectively. 
yeah, quite effect, quite effectively for 30 years, might I add, right? Yes. Like you, you've been yes. doing this for three decades. And I just want to thank you um, because Archie, as you mentioned, like you, you kind of shifted into this work, right? Like you were on another trajectory, yes. studied music, and you know, you had all these other things going for you and then made this decision to say, hey, listen, like I see a need, I'm going to address it. And then you've dedicated your life and your resources. And, you know, you've, you've rate, you instilled this in your nephew, Kevin, right? Who's gone and, and done these things. And, and now, you know, like I said, he spoke eloquently about how it has such a, a profound impact on him. And so again, I just want to thank you um, because, you know, this work is sorely needed. We need more people like you that realize the importance of it and are willing to take that time to do it. Um, because, you know, we can sit and we can complain all we want, but like how many people are actually doing the work, right? Like, and until you sit down and you in it and you create in opportunities and systems and resources for folks to improve their lives, like I tell folks, I don't really want to hear you complain, yo. I'm gonna always ask you, well, what did you do about it, right? Like, well, how did you, what did you do? Who did you talk to? What, how, how have you tried to change it? And if you haven't tried then, I mean, it's no point in complaining, man. Complaining without action ain't going to get you nowhere but more complaints. Exactly. If I could just say two last things. If you of course. If you splice it in. One of the things that bothers me deeply is as we graduate into the broader world, which is all practical purposes, European-American frame, yeah. we as Black people tend to lose who we are. We think yeah. we have to behave like white people. We need cultural competence when we are at our job. The, the best person is who get this. Uh, we need to be even and, and doing it. And once in a while, we'll hire a black person, even though I'm black, but this is what we gotta do. And I see our brothers and sisters mushrooming up to higher level positions in some of our city, uh, in city jobs. We have a commissioner, she's African-American. And I know she's good, I know she's smart and she's bright, but goodness, when you go talk to her about what it is the agency needs, we don't hear her talking about, I'm supportive of you. And even if because of my job, I can't give you, but I'll tell you where you can go or who you can access. And I see this in a lot when we work with administrators or directors or in charge of this or charge of that. I'm not saying break the law and give us something that we don't deserve, but if you can't point us in the direction show support this is a black organization how could you be pulling it down and saying oh they ain't gonna get no place and oh he wasting his time and oh he can't get a job elsewhere that's why he doing that be positive uplift join the crowd if more of us join the crowd we'll get there faster together instead of pulling it down they see themselves as growing and becoming director of this and director of that but they don't see the rest of us doing it and I think that's a tragedy. We all need to pull together and get it done. And the last thing I will say to you is, and this is little ego. We, after all these years, there's an agency. It's called 44 Blue. Um, there, it's, uh, it's, it's a media group nationally. And they have, in, they have um, gone and seen over the, this past year, um, 150 groups and checked them out and tried to see who was doing good work so they can run a national series on. We ended up being one of three. They came out, visited us for two weeks, followed us everywhere we went. I thought I, I couldn't see, but I smelled them with the perfume and the colognes behind me. They followed me everywhere. They followed the case managers, they followed the instructors, the court liaison, everybody for two weeks. 
and then they went away. They came what that was October. And they just announced about two weeks ago that we are, go we are selected as the most effective youth agency in the United States. The most effective. I have to tell you, when I wake up in the morning, I'm exhausted. I go to bed at two and three, working on documents and court reports and helping this and helping that. I don't feel like we're the best. <laughs> but to be labeled, and I ha actually have an email I can send to Kevin and have him send it to you. So to be labeled the most effective, and most of the work we have done, we have gotten high knowledge. We got, you know, from Drucker Institute, label us as replicable blueprint for replication throughout the United States. We just got an award from the mayor this past week, and Kevin can tell you, he's sitting right here. Most impactful, University of Pennsylvania has called us the most impactful youth organization in the city, GSK has given us a grant of 40,000 and a certificate saying you're one of the best. Just about every year, someone calls us in for an award. And I didn't even know about this award from the mayor. They just call me and say, you're gonna be honored. And we went down and they gave us this award. We stood next to the mayor, shook his hand. Thank you very much. What I'm saying to you is we are proud and pleased that we can get the acolytes because to be the best program, youth program in the country and we are minority, says we were blatantly good because they wouldn't give it to us. Even me, they wouldn't give it to, but they couldn't deny that they saw us genuinely working with the young people, going after whatever and caring about them and helping them get to the next step in their lives. Not the ultimate step, but in the next step and hopefully the ultimate step. And I have to tell you, this work has been tremendous for us. If anything else, I've been overjoyed to see young people who came to us in a sad state, and then you see them later on smiling, and that's who Kevin you sending that money to, mm -hmm. uh, to you know, you know, to, um, what's his name, Robert L. You know, we see these guys grow, and they come back and talk to us, and we say, "Wow, great! That's the award that we share in our hearts." It's great. The 44 Blue do an announcement, a press conference, announces officially as the most effective group in the country. And then they're going to stay back for six weeks, follow us, videotape. They want to go to some of the young people's homes to videotape what happens at night and in the morning, how their parents get them up, talk to their parents, interview them, and put together a six-week national MTV series on iDay. This is tremendous. And this is what I think, in conclusion, my mother would say, I did the best I can. There it is. You're listening to the Third Lap Podcast with Mal Davis. Yeah. That is 100% incredible, well-deserved. I'm super happy to hear that. I'm not surprised just because you're doing such incredible work in a city that absolutely needs it. But like you said, for it to be a black organization to get that recognition, that means that you are exemplary, right? Like you went above yes. and beyond and, and did everything yes. you could. Um, and like the impact is being felt, you know, and clearly because you have the recognition with awards and all of that is great. But in the end of the day is what have you done for people? How yes. have you made people feel? And the fact that you have folks that have interacted with IDA in different capacities coming back and wanting to volunteer 
there or coming to you and saying, hey, I need help. And like, I heard you can help. Like, that's a testament to the work yeah. more than anything. Yeah. yeah. So, Archie, yeah, right. congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Mal. Thank you. So well deserved, man. And so as we get to the end here, um, I just wanted to give you an opportunity because money is important, right? And so, you know, if folks were looking to donate, if people want to come and volunteer or support, um, how can people engage with IDEA, engage with you and engage with the work that you're doing? So they can call us. My cell is the primary cell number, 215-901-6976, We do have a central office in North Philadelphia, 2305 North Broad Street. Um, and you can also call there, 215-235-9110. You can also email us. If you just Google IDE or Institute for the Development, You'll get all of our information and please volunteer, help us contribute, donate. Let me tell you, that's another interesting story. I don't wanna go on too long, but we struggle for funding because we are helping all these young people with what they need and we need dollars. Sometimes we, the other day, what, last month, I can even make payroll. We were so struck for money. We were two weeks late because we needed another $7,000 to do payroll. I know I have payroll next week and I'm just about there. We need the money, we need support. But the first thing is helping our young people. And we're hoping folks have dollars that they can help us and they can call us and donate through uh, PayPal, Stripe account, of course we accept checks. You know, we accept anything except cash because cash is so problematic in terms of bringing money we don't know where it came from and that kind of stuff put in your card put in a, in a paper check send it to us thank you so much and we need it we need it thank you absolutely and folks um if you're looking to donate virtually you can go to i day that's ideas and david a a y.org backslash donate they have taxable donations here um yes. or i should say write-off donations here so because it's a nonprofit, so you know gets folks in your corporation involved listen all the professional athletes in this city and all the black folks making money yes. around here man get involved and get invested right like you spending all this money on cars and jewelry help some people man help people that were once in your position right like you know we have all of these opportunities to give back and pay forward um and, and i see so few people doing it in a meaningful way right like we do it for cloud and, and even what you mentioned right like people become directors and executive directors and undermine organizations like yours and i, I always tell people it's because they couldn't do what you've done right like they had to have some other organization or corporation give them or provide them that opportunity and that title but you built it from the ground up and you continue to grind it every single day you mentioned not being able to make payroll like we got to support man we got to get behind these organizations that are doing the work for the people um you know i got the black panther party hanging behind me and like it's all about the people man all power to the people all power to the proletariat like we can't do it alone so we got to team let's up join. Done together. Let's join and do it together. It can be done. It can be done. And it Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mal. Of course. And so um, we we made it to the end. Archie, we ran your third lap. Again, I appreciate you starting from Trinidad and Tobago all the way to where you are today on North Broad Street, making a humongous impact in the city of Philadelphia. Excited about your MTV spot. Kev, I know you're in the background. Thank you again, my brother, for connecting me with Archie. Um, I'm excited to even get involved and invested in 
connecting with you offline to see, you know, how I can and the network of folks that I know here in the city and just nationally um, can support the work that you're doing because you're tapped into a bunch of things that mean a lot to me. Um, and I, I can't wait to get involved in and use my platforms to be able to better lift up the mission and the work that you're doing. And so, you know, we're here at the end, folks, if you're looking again to connect with iDay, you can search them through Google, ideas and david a a y um it'll pop up right there they, they have great search engine optimization so it's the first thing that'll show up uh you can go directly to their website which is iday.org and again iday.org backslash donate to go over there send them some money get involved get invested volunteer if you don't have the money but you have the time um get involved and get invested in these young kids lives and support a great organization and so again archie we're here at the end any last words that you want to share before we log out Thanks for this opportunity, Mal. Thank you. It is my heart and I believe in it and I know it can get done. I know it can get done and it is getting done. Absolutely. No, thank you, man. You know, we we worked together to figure this out. We had a hiccup the first time. Kev, again, I appreciate you. We figured it out. Um, I had the opportunity to bring you on today. Um, this will definitely not be the last time that we interact either through the third lap or just in person. So excited to make this connection. Um, I thank my wife, Allison, for connecting me to Kevin in the first place. Um, I, I appreciate her for that. She's connected me to, she's like my, she, she's like my agent. She's been connecting me to everybody really. Um, and so um, I appreciate her for that. Kevin, again, thank you, man. Archie, thank you. Um, okay. And thank your staff and thank all the volunteers and everybody involved with iDay. This is another episode of the Third Lap Podcast. Each one, teach one, we all learn together. Peace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the Third Lap Podcast. This is your host, Mal Davis. Please visit thethirdlappodcast.com for more information about the podcast, about our guests, and also to see our reading list. You can find us at The Third Lap Podcast on LinkedIn and Facebook, at Third Lap on Twitter, and at Third underscore Lap underscore Podcast on Instagram. If you know anyone that would be great to be featured on this show, please reach out to our host, Mal Davis. He's always looking for interesting people to learn more about them and to talk about their pathway. Thank you so much again. Have a good one.